For as long as we have lived For as long as we have known Love has carried us You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. The reading this morning is from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. You all look wonderful. Thanks for being here today. Uh, My name is Dan Cook. For those of you who don't know me, I've been blessed to be a part of this community since pretty much the beginning. Um, And it's always a joy for me to be able to be up here and speak to you all. Uh, The last time I was up here, we had a bit of a theology lesson about the Trinity. We're going to keep it much lighter today, and we're going to talk about sin and our relationship to God. Easy stuff. No problem. No problem at all. Um, One of the cool things about being able to do this is that it's a kind of a different challenge every time. Uh, For those of you that are semi-new to Genesis, we follow the Revised Common Lectionary. So each week there's an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a gospel passage, and a New Testament passage that we're able to pick from in order, or sometimes pick more than one, if your name's Dave at all. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Dave. Uh, to, to preach from, and I had done three of those four. I haven't done a psalm yet. And so I picked the psalm very much purposefully today uh, to try that out. And psalms are interesting things because you're dealing essentially with Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew doesn't translate directly to English. So things that would rhyme or have uh, poetic structure in the Hebrew that doesn't necessarily make its way to English. So it can be a little interesting to try and dig your way into those things. And there's sort of a secondary challenge to this particular psalm because there's at least one verse in here that if I'm going to be kind, I'd say it's frustrating. And if I'm not going to be kind, it made me mad to read it. And I almost didn't use this particular piece of scripture because I couldn't figure out how to get at this verse. And there's sort of two ways you can approach something like that. You can either go pick something else, which I almost did. Well, one of the things I'm learning, and I have learned, and and, uh, seminary is really driving this home, is that when you run into a piece of uh, scripture that either doesn't seem to reflect the kind of grace-filled, self-sacrificially loving God that we follow, you can actually dig in there, and there's usually something there that's going to speak to you at a much deeper level than just the surface meaning that you read. 
there's a treasure to be found in there if you can really do the work and find it. And we can't always sit there and do the work, but if you can, there's something there. And I think there's something in this passage today in that regard. So I don't think it made its way into the liturgy, but the Psalms often have a header at the beginning of them. And the header to Psalm 51 reads something like, A Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we're fairly familiar, I would think, most of us with the story of David and Bathsheba. But we have to start there to get to where we're going to go with Psalm 51. So we're going to start with a quick prayer and then let's dig in. If you'd all join me. Father God, I thank you for this place and I thank you for the people who make it what it is. I thank you for the opportunity to be here today to worship you. Holy Spirit, please come, surround us, fill us, lift us up, and help us to know you better as we dive into the word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So what we're really going to do today, or what I'm going to try to do, is, is dig in verse by verse and see what's in here. But like I said, we got to start back at the story of David and Bathsheba. And I'm going to skim through that pretty quickly. It's found in 2 Samuel verses, or chapter 11. David, it's a springtime, the army's off on a campaign, but David, instead of leading the campaign, has chosen to stay back home, which is something of a departure for him. He's sent Joab off, his commander, to lead the army. He stays back at the palace. And he's at the palace one day, I imagine, kind of bored, and he's looking out a window, and there's Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. Now, it's a ritual bath. This isn't like a Cialis commercial. <laughs> but, but she's bathing, right? And he sees her, and he's smitten. And so he sends a servant over to get her and bring her back to the palace. Stuff happens. And Bathsheba tells him that she's pregnant. Well, now we got a problem. So David's first choice is to try and cover up this indiscretion by sending for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who's off at the front. Bring Uriah home. Uriah goes and hangs out with Bathsheba. And David's covered because the baby's going to get ascribed to him. So Uriah comes back from the front. David greets him. How are things going? How's the campaign? Everything's good? Good, good. Why don't you go hang with your wife? And Uriah, either seeing this as a, t uh, a test or he's just the stand-up of a guy, says, no, no, I, I can't go home to my wife. My men that are out in the front can't go home to their wives. They're laying down their lives. I can't just go home to my, my wife. That's not right. So plan A goes out the window, and David then turns to plan B. Plan B is to send Uriah back to the front with a note for the commander Joab, that says the next time that you send out a sortie against the city that you're laying siege to, put Uriah at the front of it, and once they're out, have everybody else pull back and leave Uriah on his own. Which, of course, results in Uriah's death. This makes Bathsheba a widow, and after the traditional mourning period, David can now marry her, and that legitimizes the child. And he thinks, I'm cool. It's all good. Nope. Because what he forgets is that God sees all of this. And so God sends a prophet, Nathan, to come and rebuke David. And as God so often does, the teaching is done by way of a story. So Nathan comes to David and tells him a story, a story of a rich man who has endless numbers of livestock at his disposal, has everything he could possibly want, and a poor man who lives nearby. And the poor man has one lamb to his name. And this lamb is so valuable that he, it treats it like a daughter, it says in the scripture, like a member of the family. A traveler comes to visit the rich man. The rich man doesn't really want to use any of his livestock to feed this guy. So he sends a servant to go grab the poor man's lamb, and they use that to feed the traveler. Because what's the poor man going to do about it, right? 
And as Nathan is telling David the story, David's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And how dare this guy? This rich man has everything he could possibly want. He goes and takes from this poor man who's got nothing else other than this little lamb. Surely this man deserves death. And Nathan's like, huh? That's you. Whoa. So now David has a choice, right? Well, no, that's apples and oranges. That's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. Or he can get honest and say, yeah, okay. You're right. You caught me. And to David's credit, that's what he does. And so now he's realized that his relationship with God has been broken by this series of sins that he's committed. And he needs to try and restore it. Psalm 51 is his appeal to God to try and restore this relationship. That's what's at the heart of it. So we're going to dive into these verses. I'm going to take the first two, and we're going to see what's there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. There's a lot of me's in there for a guy that's trying to apologize, right? But I sort of identify with that because when I do the Dan Cook apology tour, which is far more often than I'd prefer, it's a, it's a lot of, I'm sorry, I screwed up, I made a mistake, I won't let that happen again. And I can tell you exactly where that comes from because when I first started the job that I'm in now, working at a radio station, the job itself, sort of, you're the, the nerve center of the radio station. You're sort of the hub of the wheel, so to speak, which isn't a matter of bragging, it's just the nature of the gig. What that means is that when I make a mistake, it affects everybody else that I'm working with. But to learn how to do the job, you sort of have to just get in there and start making mistakes and figuring out how to fix them. So there are a lot of mistakes early on. Sometimes things that are out of your control. And when that happens, I tend to get a little defensive. Well, I mean, it's not my fault. There's other thing and these other people, and I don't know, you know. And I had a colleague pull me aside at one point and say, look, I get it. You're not wrong. This isn't all your fault. But when people come to you and there's an issue, they really want two things. They want, one, to, for you to validate that it's okay for them to be upset that a mistake was made. And two, to know that you're aware that there was a mistake made and that you're doing everything you can to not make it again. If you can do those two things, you're going to establish some terrific relationships with people here. And he's not wrong. It's, it's worked. I've got some very, very meaningful relationships with folks that I work with because I was willing to step up, even if it wasn't my fault, and just take it. Yeah, that's okay. I'm sorry. I screwed up. That won't, that won't happen again. The other edge of that sword, though, is that the apologies then become about me instead of about the other person. And you could be tempted when you read this, again, with all the me's in there, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. You could think that that's what David might be doing here is making it about him. I don't think he is. I think what he's starting with here is saying, God, I committed these sins and I forgot that you were watching all of this. That's what's sort of at the root of all of this stuff that I've been doing. And so I want you to know that I understand your character, that I have been reminded of who you are and the promises that you have made. You're the kind of God that shows mercy. You're the kind of God that shows unfailing love. You're the kind of God that shows great compassion. You're the kind of God that can wash away iniquity and cleanse sin. He's appealing to God's, God's character and reminding God that, yeah, I'm aware of the promise that you have made to your people. Remember, the original covenant is really God telling Abraham that I understand that creation has been broken and I'm going to fix it through you and your people. So we're invited to ask God for help in that regard, in that effort, right? You can find, you can find him telling us to ask in the Gospels. If you look at Luke 
Chapter 11, verse 9. These are famous words. You'll recognize them right away. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will, be, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We are invited to ask God for his help in fixing what's wrong with us, in fixing the stuff that we screw up. And that's, I think, what David's doing in these first couple of verses. Coming right out and saying, God, I can't do this myself. I need your help. And I think there's something there. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. My sin is always before me, I think, is kind of an interesting line, right? Does that mean that sin is always out in front of us and no matter which way we go, we're going to eventually run into it and we can't help but sin? Sin is inevitable? I don't think that's what David's getting at here. I think the first half of that verse tells you what he's trying to get at. For I know my transgressions. David thought he had covered this all up, had it bowed up and tied away and put away and nobody was ever going to know. But he knew. He knew what he had done. He always knew what he had done. And if he's going to restore this relationship with God, the very first thing he's got to do is be honest with himself about the things that he has done. The second thing is be honest with God. That's where I think the sin is always before him. He knows it, and God sees every bit of it. And here's David acknowledging, yeah, I know that you see every bit of what I'm doing. What would it be like to trust God enough, trust in his character, trust in the covenant promises, to be able to say, yeah, okay, here's everything. I know you know it already, and I'm going to just be honest about it. It's not easy to do, but we're invited to do it. That's how we restore that relationship with God. Now, verse 4 is the doozy. Verse 4 is the one that made me mad. Verse 4 says, my pages flip on me, Verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. The second half of that, so you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge, I think goes back to him, again, appealing, appealing to God's character. I know who you are. I know you're going to judge me fairly. It's the first half of that that I have a problem with, right? Against you, you only have I sinned. Really? Against God only has David sinned here? We just reviewed the story. Is that true? Is that right? That's not right. No. What is David saying? Is he saying, okay, well, you know, I did some bad stuff to those people, but let's not worry about that, God. Me and you, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. And once we're good, everything else is fine. No. That's not right. What in the world is he getting at? He sinned against people other than God, yes? Okay, well, let's make a list. Let's do an all play. Let's make a list. Who is David sinned against? Go ahead, shout out a name. Who's he sinned against? Uriah. He had the man killed. Bathsheba. You'll notice if you go back to that 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba, you virtually don't get Bathsheba's view on any of this. What did she think when the servant showed up and said that the king wants to see you? What did she think when she got to the palace and realized the king wanted to do more than just see her? What did she think when she heard her husband had been called home and couldn't come home to see her? What did she think when her husband was killed and suddenly the king wants to marry her? We don't get her view of this at all. Does that mean there was no consent? I think that's a fair conclusion. And it brings up all kinds of sin that he committed against Bathsheba. Uriah, Bathsheba, I can think of two other people that he sinned against here. Anybody else have a name? Joab, the commander. 
Now, you're the commander of the army. You've sworn fealty to this king. You're going to obey everything he orders you to do. And he sends you a note that says, this guy, send him out and make sure he gets killed. It's one thing to send troops out into a battle and know some of them aren't going to come back. It's a completely other thing to say, this guy, send him out and make sure he gets killed. That's got to be a problematic order to give, doesn't it? But Joab's promised to sworn before God and the entire community to follow every order that David gives him. What does he do? David sinned against Joab. I can think of one other one as well. What about David? David sinned against himself in all of this. If David's created in the image of God, the image of God is decidedly nothing David has done here. And you deface Sin in and of its essence, it defaces the image of God that you've you've been created with. You can't destroy it, but you can put a bad face on it. And David sure does here. See, the root of this sin, the root of, I think, to a degree you could argue all sin, is David, we talked about earlier, had, had forgotten who he was. He'd forgotten whose he was. And he'd forgotten whose everyone else is too. If God created the entire universe and everything in it, then we don't own anything. Your money, your car, your house, your spouse, none of that belongs to you. None of that belongs to any of us. It's all God's. And if we forget that, it becomes much easier to take that stuff from other people. That's at the root of what happened here with David. He forgot whose he was. He forgot Bathsheba's body was not his to take. Uriah's life was not his to take. Joab's integrity was not David's to take. The image of God contained within David himself was not David's to deface. That's the root of all of this sin. It was one mistake followed by a bunch of attempts to cover it up. And the mistake, the initial mistake, wasn't sleeping with Bathsheba. That was a mistake. The initial mistake was David standing there and seeing another child of God created in God's image and saying, that's mine. I can possess that. Go figure, a rich, powerful man sees a woman as an object. That never happens. (laughs) But it's not just rich, powerful men, right? If we're all going to get real honest with it, men have done this throughout the centuries, rich, poor, and otherwise. I've had moments I'm guilty of it. Women are not objects. Women are not things for men to possess, period. And fellas, we got to do better. We just do. All of us. Because if it's not us, it's us holding other guys accountable. That's what happened. That mistake followed by everything else is about David forgetting whose he is. And I think that's what's at the heart of this passage against you and you only, God, have I sinned. It's not David saying, that other stuff, I mean, okay, that was bad, but really it's you, God, that I've got to deal with. It's I did horrible, horrible things to these people. And what really makes it infinitely worse is that the root of it is me forgetting who God is, whose I am, and the promises God has made to me that I will always have enough, that I don't have to take other people's stuff. I don't have to take things that belong to God and make them as though they're mine. That's what, that's what I think David's trying to drive at in this fourth verse. Verse five. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This verse often gets used to try and connect David and us by proxy to original sin, right? Sure, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is 
one of the proof texts that gets used for infant baptism, is that we are sinful literally exiting the womb, and if you don't baptize that baby right out of the gate and something happens, then what happens to that child's soul? But I don't think that's what David's driving at here. Again, remember the context. He's trying to restore his relationship with God. And what he's saying in this verse is, not only am I sinful, I am sinful to my very core. Because if I'm going to get right with God, it isn't just about this series of sins that I've done. i got to get it all out there. I have to open myself up and I have to be honest with myself about everything I've ever done and trust in God's character and trust in God's covenantal promises that that's going to be okay, I'm going to be forgiven, I'm going to be washed clean. That's heavy stuff, right? We've all got stuff in the closet we don't want to tell anybody. And yet, in this passage, what we're being invited to do is being open and honest with ourselves and with God for that very purpose. If we want to get this right, if we really want to get past all this stuff in our past, it's got to come out. Not necessarily publicly. I'm not saying anybody's got to stand up here and I've got to you know, bare my soul and tell you everything I've ever done wrong. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about really being honest and raw with yourself and being honest and raw with God and trusting that God's going, not going to abandon you. I think that's the fear. That's the fear I have in terms of getting real with God is that he's going to turn his face from me. And what God's saying in virtually every page of this book is, no, I won't do that. As long as you hang with me, I'm hanging with you. That's what God's trying to get at here. We're starting to run a little short on time. One little piece I want to point out, in verse 7, we're going to skip to verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop is is a weed that they used to bunch together and used to essentially paint, use them as brushes, right? If you go back to the Exodus, when the angel of death was going to come through and kill all the firstborn, and the Israelites were told to paint with lamb's blood their door jam, so the angel of death would know to pass by, what they used to smear that blood on the door jam was a bunch of hyssop. And so David's very, very pointedly pointing back to, you passed over those folks when they used hyssop to clean ritually in the Exodus, I need you to clean me with that now, God. I need you to have the angel of death. The consequences, of, right, the, the wages of sin are death. We're all familiar with that, right? Sin in and of itself carries with it its own death consequences. It isn't God coming and saying, you're done. If we stray from the path that God has set before us, which is what sin, when you get down to breaking down the word, actually is. It's, you know, straying from that path, straying from that trajectory, The consequence of not turning and coming back, which is what the word repent means, is to turn back. The consequence of that is death. That's part of the inherent nature of sin. Sin is is an insidious thing, right? David didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I'm a little bored. I know. I'll go sleep with somebody else's wife and I'll get her pregnant and then when the husband won't cover my tracks for me, I'll have him... You don't wake up with that plan. It's the little bits that sneak up on you, right? Till suddenly, I imagine when Nathan's confronting David, David's sitting there, how in the world did I get here? I never wanted this to happen. But that's how it works, right? 
The enemy is very crafty. He sneaks up on you. He whispers one little thing in your ear. Well, it's no big deal. It's, your eye is out at the front. Nobody will ever know. And then all this happens. Are we willing to trust in God's character and the covenant promises enough to be able to say, if you come and you cleanse me with hyssop, I know I will be clean. Do we have the, do we have the courage to ask for that? It's a gutsy thing to ask for, right? Especially when we feel we've done so many wrong things. So how, how do we do this? How do we go about making that ask, right? That's a good question. We're going to skip down to verse 10. It's 10, 11, and 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David's basically saying, God, this is what I need in order to be able to make this relationship work. I need you to create in me a pure heart. I need you to renew a steadfast spirit. I need you to renew, to restore the joy of your salvation. I need you to grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Those aren't small asks, especially when he's just committed all of these sins against God, against God only, remember? And yet David trusts and has faith in God's character and the covenant promises to the point where he can say, yep, I need your help, God. I can't do this on my own. That's how we try to start the path of restoring this relationship with God. And the beauty of it is, what, again, is dripping from the pages of these books is God saying, I love you, I am with you, I am for you, and it doesn't matter what you've done. If you're real with me, I'm real with you, and we're going to get through this together. And I think that is the driving heart of Psalm 51. When you get to that fourth verse and you get really angry and you set your Bible down and say, I don't think I can preach from this. And then you dig a little deeper and you're reminded about the character of God and you're reminded about the covenant promises of God and you're reminded about the very nature of sin, forgetting who you are and whose you are. Suddenly the whole thing peels open to you. So as we enter into 60 seconds of silence, I want to invite you and encourage you to take a moment and remember who you are, whose you are, whose everyone else in this room is, everyone else in this building, everyone else in this city, everyone else in this universe, whose you are, and ask the Holy Spirit to plant within you a heart that can sustain that knowledge. Amen? Amen. Amen. Holy Spirit, please come.